So, you know, I had no intention, like literally zero intention of ever building a business around these tools. I thought they were just going to be open source and free. And at, at best, they would help my resume to get a better job. Like that's that was going through my mind as a, you know, in college. And so I didn't try to build this mega generic tool that solved everyone's problems. I built Vagrant and my MVP was, I want a really awesome VM-based development workflow for Ruby on Rails because that's what I do every day. And that's sort of how it formed. I'm Mitchell Hashimoto. I'm the founder and CTO of HashiCorp. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labpart, and today how Mitchell Hashimoto created the tool set to create consistent workflows across your infrastructure. All this and more on Code Story. Mitchell Hashimoto started programming in middle school, teaching himself how to code through open source libraries and zip files he could download on the internet. He's a pilot and owns his own plane, which happens to be a Cirrus. And he spends an hour a day studying or practicing flying, and even takes his wife and dog up every now and then, when there's something worth flying to, and they can make the oxygen work for the dog. He attended college at the University of Washington in Seattle, which was located equidistant from Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and other cloud-focused infrastructure companies. As you can imagine, there was a huge focus on this topic while he was at school, and he was able to gain access to vast resources through his computer lab and research projects. It was these projects that put the ideas in his head on what he could make in order for infrastructure to work better. This is the creation story of HashiCorp. So HashiCorp is a company that builds a portfolio of tools based in open source, aimed at cloud adoption, multi-cloud, and just in general, like infrastructure automation and getting more out of your infrastructure. The way I sort of got into that was during college, I went to college at University of Washington in Seattle. And being there, I was sort of equidistant more or less from Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. And then that office actually became the Google Cloud office eventually. And there was a huge sort of infrastructure mindset during the time I was there. EC2, AWS had just announced EC2 and S3 about a year prior to me going to college. And uh, because of that, I sort of had access to all that through our computer science program and uh, some research projects I was on. So. I just sort of dipped my toes in that and realized how difficult certain aspects of the cloud were, especially, you know, at that time, AWS literally had two products. Yeah, that sort of motivated me and got me into the cloud space and and got a bunch of ideas in my head of what to build. I think the benefit of being in college is that you aren't, in some sense, you're, you're ignorant about how the real world works. And so, you know, everyone was convinced in academia in my little bubble that cloud was sort of the future. And then when I tried to use it, I was like, well, there's, it's missing a ton of things. And as I graduated and went into sort of industry, I realized startups were basically trying to use cloud still and still struggling. And so that's when I really started to, to work on these uh, with, with Ernest. 
Well, let's step into the MVP. And this will be interesting to hear what was the first MVP. So tell me about that MVP, You know, how long it took you to build and what sort of tools you used to get it off of the ground. Yeah, it's a little bit tricky to answer in, in the case of HashiCorp because we are a portfolio company. So we have eight to 10 products, depending how you count. The first one I built was called Vagrant, um, which was a VM-based development tool. And that was still while I was in college. And I have this whole ethos where just I choose to only work on problems that I have myself. That's just something I love to do. I like to solve my own problems and I like to be motivated. That, that motivates me in particular about stuff I'm working on. And so products sort of followed this order of the challenges that I saw more or less early on. And the first one was, was Vagrant. It's interesting. So, so I didn't know that Vagrant was the first one. When you're building that first that first product, you know what sort of tools did you have to use? And when you're building that first product, too, there's trade-offs and decisions, right? That you have to make. You know, you're trying to get something out there that works, that solves a problem, and I love it that solves a problem for you. Tell me about those trade-offs and decisions, and what sort of tools you were using. To give you context of the time, I was a Ruby on Rails web developer, like junior web developer, just, you know, getting started in industry. I was probably my between my second and third year in college, so very junior. And so I used Ruby to build Vagrant. It's the only HashiCorp tool that we ended up using Ruby for. And I also, you know, had very little money as a college student. So I knew I wanted to use VMs and dig into that, but I couldn't use cloud-based ones because they cost money, like EC2 costs money, and I didn't want to pay for it. And the only free sort of hypervisor was VirtualBox, which was owned by Sun at the time, and it's now Oracle. And so I built Vagrant around VirtualBox for that reason. I think as I got older and met more people using Vagrant, they always asked me, like, why did you choose this to do that? And it's kind of funny because it wasn't so much a decision. It was just I didn't have money. and That was the only option I had. But it ended up working out. And and you asked about sort of constraints and focusing the problem in that MVP. And for me, the MVP for Vagrant was really focused around my own use case. You know, I had no intention, like literally zero intention of ever building a business around these tools. I thought they were just going to be open source and free. And at, at best, they would help my resume to get a better job. Like that's that was going through my mind as a, you know, in college. And so... I didn't try to build this mega generic tool that solved everyone's problems. I built Vagrant and my MVP was I want a really awesome VM-based development workflow for Ruby on Rails because that's what I do every day. And that's sort of how it formed. So you have an MVP built. It's based in Ruby. It's solving a problem for you. You had no intention to build a business around it. How did the product progress from there? How did you mature it? And what sort of caused you and helped you shape the roadmap? So the first year of Vagrant, no one really used it. There was very few downloads the entire year. And, you know, that did, I, I was a little bummed about that because I, I did think I built something pretty cool. And, and it felt like people were telling me that I didn't. After about a year, things started picking up and I started meeting people at meetups and stuff who were excited about Vagrant, which surprised me. And, and I started learning more. And that sort of motivated me to focus more on this and start building features for other people, uh, not just myself, into the product. Over the next couple of years, I did that for free. Um, still didn't plan to build a business. But that sort of gave me the foundation of the community as well as the you know minimal sort of industry, I don't know, experience or respect or whatever you want to call it that I needed to, to start the next thing, uh, the next product and, and build a company around it. 
So let's double back a little bit then and back to another MVP story. So tell me maybe about like Terraform or Vault. Tell me about those, the inception stories. Vagrant was the only one built in Ruby. So would you build Terraform in and how long did it take you to get kind of a uh, an MVP out there? So everything else is written in Go. So th- we switched to Go um, and sort of as the transition here from Vagrant to Terraform and Vault, I think what's funny is for the first few years of the company, people just, you know, didn't call us HashiCorp or anything. They just called us like sort of the Vagrant company. And then at a certain point, probably four or five years ago now, we were fighting that, fighting that, fighting that. And then at a certain point it switched and now we're sort of like the Terraform Vault company, which is nice in some ways. And then it's a different challenge than another. Yeah, so we have Terraform and Vault now, which are very popular. And let me think. I mean, I think Terraform uh, is sort of interesting to talk about the MVP. Funny enough, Vault doesn't go back to college, but Terraform does go back to college. I wrote a blog post in college when CloudFormation was announced from AWS. And I reposted this on in, in a gist, a public gist. But basically, I said, you know, I'm super excited about CloudFormation. I think it's pretty limited how it is now. I think they're going to iterate really well. But I'd really love to see like an open source alternative that worked with multiple cloud platforms and stuff. And I posted that four years before I ever built Terraform. And so when we swung back around to Terraform, I already had that idea a long time ago. I just thought someone else would build it. I didn't think it was going to be me. It have to be me who built it. And I rediscovered, not rediscovered, it was just getting hit, hit with that problem again and looked around and thought like, no, my God, we still only have CloudFormation. And even if you like CloudFormation, it's AWS only. Like what, what are we, what's the state of things? And so that led to the creation of Terraform, which really the MVP for me was build a better CloudFormation for AWS, but like sort of on the foundation, knowing that beyond the MVP was going to be a bunch more cloud providers and, and different types of things you could, uh, you could manage as code. So same question as Vagrant then. So as you were building that, you know, what sort of decisions and trade-offs did you have to make? I think the biggest risk to Terraform, the biggest trade-off we had to make was we felt it would be very difficult to support everything in AWS, especially because they were just really AWS was just starting the inflection point where they started shipping a ton of services. I think when we started Terraform, it was still pretty manageable like i think you could take any infrastructure person they could probably name like every aws service it was still at that point and we're just about to lose control of that and so the biggest risk was how do we build something like cloud formation and support all the features of aws because it's huge you know we looked at machine generation and stuff and it just a big motivator of terraform was to build this more human oriented tooling you you could sort of tell cloud formation was like machine generated clients and stuff it just didn't it felt like you were like writing the API in JSON. It didn't feel good. And I wanted to, we wanted to sort of build something that felt better. And so we decided to hand write every single resource uh, and customize it, even if it didn't match the API one-to-one. And that was a, a trade-off sort of we decided to make saying, we believe that you know 90% uh, of people use less than 10% of Amazon's resources out there for the most part, you know, something like that. That wasn't based on data or anything. That was just based on experience and, and a, a guess. And that's how we ship Terraform. And that worked for a really long time. That assumption makes a ton of sense, especially you, you look, you gaze upon AWS and you see its complexities. Yeah. And it's a funny thing because even to this day, you know, Terraform supports a huge surface area of AWS now, but even to this day, the reaction from folks who use something like Terraform 
if it doesn't support one thing that they need, if it supports like, let's say they're building their infrastructure and it supports 50 things they need, but the 51st thing is not supported. It's amazing how useless feeling the tool becomes in that moment. You know, that's what people say. And it's a bit hyperbolic to say it's useless, but really like if that's a cornerstone piece of your infrastructure and you can't automate that, the whole idea of infrastructure's code breaks down. We really sprinted right away after Terraform's release into supporting as much as we can. And now that there's so many, you know, more esoteric features of AWS, we really just wait until a community member says, you know, I need this weird thing. And, and then we add support. So then as a whole, HashiCorp, how did you go about building your team? So it started out, you, you built Vagrant, but then you started you know, getting some success with that. And then you start growing into portfolio products. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I think this answer would change uh, depending on the phase of the company. You know, I think picking, as you put them, winning horses for an early stage startup versus you know middle and late stages, they're very different types of people. I think that's one of the reasons that you rarely see people stick through all these different phases because you sort of need different people for each one and, and people don't adapt as well. But early on, um, it was pretty straightforward for us. We wanted to find people that were passionate about the ideas we had and could accept a little bit of uncertainty at a, at a job given we were early stage. And the people we tapped for that and asked if they were interested were all the people that contributed regularly to our open source projects. So we just went through GitHub and literally opened, uh, well, we actually just literally sorted by commit count reverse, you know, descending and is before GitHub did this for you. So we just did it on the command line and started emailing these people based on the email they had in their Git commits. You know, it, it's funny to look back on it now, especially because I was much younger and much more naive about companies and also the commitment that I was asking these people and stuff like that. You know, the emails were so casual. I look back and some of the people that are still at the company, I literally sent them a two sentence email. It's like, hey, I started a company around this thing. Do you want to work on it full time? done like no other detail uh and it's kind of strange but it worked out really well how many people did you hire just off of commits if you remember uh i don't know the exact count but i'll I'll say it's probably like 15 to 20 people that's a large amount that's a a really cool story yeah and i mean that's uh we don't need to get into this but that sort of led into why our company is now remote right we're remote from the beginning and that was sort of a big part of it I think I know the answer to this, given the nature of the product and the portfolio that you've built. But how does scalability factor into how you approach things? I assume it factors into everything. But even from from the early days of Vagrant, you know, maybe Terraform 2 or any of the other products, how did you go about thinking about this and making sure that the products are scalable themselves, even though they're tools around scalability? You know, this isn't a formal differentiation we make but it is a differentiation i like to make which is we have two different types of tools i call them sort of the runtime tools and then more of the pipeline tools the runtime tools are the ones that run sort of on the server side that would be like vault and console and nomad and those server side components and the pipeline tools are more the ones you'd run on your desktop which are like vagrant and packer and terraform i like to break those up because the properties we've learned over the years that we need to build to make those scalable really fall into those two categories. The stuff you do for Terraform doesn't really make sense for Vault and vice versa. I think early on, we made this bet 
which was kind of scary at the time, but we made this bet on distributed systems and Raft and being, you know, looking at things like Vault and realizing these are core infrastructure components. You know, these are things that they, you don't gracefully degrade if they go down, this brings down your infrastructure. And so we, we optimized uptime over everything else at the beginning. We wrote, you know, one of the first Raft libraries for Go that we still use to this day. And a lot of other products use that. Uh, like I think GitHub's database charter thing uses our Raft library, for example. We sort of just built into that. I think something we think about with scaling is, you know, try to run through your head what has to happen for each request and and where are the hot spots and don't optimize them. Just like think about it. Just know it's there. And, and we don't optimize it until we know it's the bottleneck. But if we think about it that way, you could realize like, oh, this is if we expect this to be a thousand requests per second, this is going to suck and things like that. And when we think about Vault, we really think hard about that sort of element. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all you've built at HashiCorp, what are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of, of two things. And I'll get more specific with one of them, but there, there's the tech side and the people side. I mean, I think the tech side, I'm really most proud of the impact that these ended up having. Because like I said at the beginning... I never thought we'd build a business around it or that many people would use it. And, you know, Hashicorp as a company now has a significant number of the Fortune 500 using our tools, and that's just not what I ever expected. But more specifically on the tech, I mean, I think Terraform probably is the one that I think changed sort of a mindset of representing things as code, more things as code, and having that pick up and be successful is really, really cool. But I do want to mention the people side because I'm an engineer you know, I write the code uh, early on, stuff like that. So I fixated on my goals around the code and I never stepped back and thought about it until it already happened. The human impact that the company would have and just to be able to like look and see, you know, the company's over a thousand people now that, you know, a thousand people get their paycheck and pay their bills and live their lives, you know, partially thanks to this software that we wrote. Um, and that's really cool that we could have both the industry impact through the technology and the human impact of having a set of people that are really happy in their jobs and being able to do this for money. I mean, that's pretty cool. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Yeah, there's a lot of mistakes. Um, I, I want to mention, I guess, a big one. Uh, uh, and the biggest one I could think of is our first commercial product out of HashiCorp. It, it was a total failure. We scratched it pivoted the company commercially, pivoted the company, and it sort of defined what HashiCorp is today. And, and so early on, we had, you know, this portfolio of open source products and our first commercial product, the thesis we had was our community uses most of these products. They're looking for a way to unify them and have sort of a single management interface to all of them. And so that was our first commercial product. And it was a total miss. Like if you read any sort of like whatever lean startup type books, we broke every rule and paid the price because of it, because we didn't really talk to customers. We were building a product for a problem we didn't have. And so we stepped out of that box and that bit us and we built the whole thing and started selling it before, you know, we started getting more feedback. So we didn't iterate really. And what we ended up building was something nobody wanted. And then we got into the sunk cost thing where we started selling it and we weren't listening to what people were telling us. And it wasn't until maybe six months of very difficult sales. We closed a few sales, but very difficult sales that we looked at the notes and thought about the meetings we had and realized, you know, oh my God, 
our customers are telling us the answer, which is, you know, we'd go into these meetings and pitch this product for like half an hour and they would be like, okay, thanks. Is there a commercial version of Vault? You know, <laughs> that would be what they said. Like they would dismiss the, the presentation immediately. And it's so obvious in hindsight. It's so funny how clouded we could get as humans and, and what we built. But when we looked back, we realized, okay, we're not making a lot of money. The sales process is really painful. Customers are asking for single product commercial versions. Um, and the people who want to pay us are big businesses is what we also found out. Because we at the time we had this thesis that anybody could buy this. You swipe a credit card and anybody could buy this. But it just doesn't work that way. And so the, the wake up moment was we had this very difficult board meeting. And we weren't like chastised or anything. It's It's more of like when your parents don't say you did anything wrong, but you could tell you did something wrong. It was sort of like that. We left the board meeting and me and my co-founder were silent on the entire drive back to San Francisco. Um, the board meeting was south of San Francisco. And when we got into our office, um, we sort of sat there. It's like a Friday night and we were sitting in the office and we said, you know, okay, that didn't go well. And we decided just as a thought experiment, if we could clean slate everything, if we could start over and there was no sunk cost or anything, what would we do differently? And we drew out on a whiteboard per product commercial versions, what features would that have? How would we package it? Sell it only to enterprises, you know, build a team around that. We looked at this whiteboard and luckily, you know, startups, you know, we're like 30 people at the time. It was Friday night and we said, let's do it. And so Monday morning, we called our board, we put together an all hands and we said, we're, we're switching strategies. We're now an enterprise company. This product we had, we're sunsetting it. Sales of that are going to stop immediately. Um, and we're going to go full focus on one product. And the first product is going to be Vault Enterprise. And then, you know, it'll go from there. And that that one decision informed us on, we hired a CEO, VP of sales. You know, it, it made it really clear who we were hiring after that. And it set the stage for the company. And, so, and that's what we continue to do today. So that was that was a huge mistake. And I think if we didn't recognize it, you know, that could have been um, company ending uh, at a certain point. So who influences the way that you work? You know, a CEO, a CTO, a, an architect, really any person. Who influences the way that you work and who do you look up to and why? Uh, there's a lot of a lot of people, um, depending on what I'm, you know, what, what area I'm focusing on. I think as an engineer, this has changed over time, but the person today that as an engineer, I just respect so much and, and read everything they write and and all that is uh, Russ Cox, who's one of the core Go people currently, but his resume is impressive. Um, or he's, I think he's the project lead for Go, but I just love how he's a very measure, a measure twice, cut once kind of person. And the way he communicates is very thoughtful and kind and inclusive. And the code he writes and the technology he makes is just amazing and so you know i like to try to learn from that and try to be similar in that way and yeah really impressive guy well last question mitchell you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing they're jazzed about it they can't wait to show it off to you can't wait to show it off to the world maybe they're in college and they just heard about a new you know product that came out and they're jazzed to build something you know something for it what advice do you give that person having gone down this road? 
<laughs> I I almost have this situation happening right now, except I don't know if they have the next big thing yet. But uh, I have a I have a cousin in college who's just discovering startups and technology and is super hyped about it. And I had I had to think about what I say, sort of. And and I think the advice I would give people is that you know you know a lot less than you think, and that's okay. It's actually probably a really good thing. But to make up for that, you really have to surround yourself with people who are good at what they do and interested in helping you learn. You know, I, at the time, you know, 10 years ago when we started HashiCorp, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And it turns out that I didn't know a lot. There was a lot I had to learn, but I, you know, got lucky, got introduced to the right people and and got the right investors and stuff to help me out. And there's a difference between, you know, someone who's going to give you a check or get involved because of ego or just wanting to put you on a resume or whatever and they just want to stand back and let you do your thing versus someone who is getting involved doesn't have an ego and just generally wants you to succeed and and those are the people you want to be around because they're going to nudge you in the right direction and teach you things uh, and so that's what I would tell people is you know you can't do it alone find advisors find folks that could help you and don't chase names don't chase fame none of that stuff success will come if you just focus on sort of uh, building the fundamentals that's great advice well Mitchell thank you for being on the show today thank you for being on Code Story and telling the creation story or the in, the inception story of HashiCorp no problem it's really fun and this concludes another chapter of Code Story Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.